pretty good crowd for fall break. You never know what to expect. You guys are like, don't remind me. We're, we're here. Uh, a lot of you are locals, though. So, well, welcome. Uh, glad to see you. Uh, today, we're jumping back into our series on growth. We're not taking a break, even though it is fall break, so we're just going to march right along. Um, we're calling this series Growing Up because that is what God wants from every single one of us, every single one of his children. You can think about it, you know, kind of from the, the birth metaphor. He's caused us to be born again. He's made us his spiritual children. He's made us alive, and he wants us to grow. And he wants us to progress from this spiritual infancy to maybe what we'll call spiritual adolescence. Uh, but it doesn't want to, we don't want to stop there. We want to progress on towards spiritual adulthood, spiritual maturity. And just to put it simply, kind of by review, God wants the pattern of our lives to resemble Jesus. He wants us to think and to feel and to act like his son on a consistent basis. That's the idea of maturity, and that's his goal for our lives. He's been working out every last thing toward this glorious end. And we saw that uh, in, in the first lesson. In lesson one, we looked at understanding maturity. What is this idea of maturity? What, is it, what are we shooting for? What's the target? And we saw that he's absolutely committed to this goal for us. He's committed, like we saw in Philippians, to finishing the work that he started. Philippians 1.6. He's so committed, in fact, that he's given us everything we need to grow. We've seen this over the last few weeks. We've, we've been looking at what he's provided to accomplish this goal of maturing us into the image of his son. We've called that the means of maturity. And these are not sort of independent means of kind of like four different paths to get to maturity. They're more like a highway of, of uh, you know, with dotted lines in between each of them. They're all together. They all work together for our growth. And the first one was the spirit. Yeah. A little more confidence next time. Maybe it's a little more coffee, then a little more confidence, right? We looked at the Spirit. He is the hope for every human being, and it's bound up in whether or not we have God's Spirit dwelling in us. Without God's Spirit, we are dead in sin, and we can't change. But with God's Spirit, we have access to God's creative and transforming power, to God Himself. He makes us alive and He energizes us to repent of sin and to produce fruit over time. But we also saw that the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in and through the truth. One of the Spirit's fundamental ministries in our lives is helping us understand and apply the truth. That's how He bears His fruit in our lives. He turns on the lights in our hearts, so to speak. He convicts us of sin. He helps us see the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He teaches us to obey. He helps us renew our minds. And he does all this through the, through the ministry of his word. And last week we saw that the spirit can be found working in and through his people in a particular place. Which was our third means. He is working in and through his people in the midst of the church. God's designed this place, the local church as the place where this transformation happens. God has set up his church in such a way to promote and defend the truth through its public ministries like preaching, prayer, and the ordinances. But the church also models what obedience looks like through the people, the relationships we have in the body. So it makes sense then that the gathered church is the place God has designed to transform us Sunday after Sunday. 
Okay? And if you missed any of those messages, and I would just blitz through, you know, four weeks worth of messages, uh, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to those. So Sunday after Sunday, being transformed in the church. But what about Monday through Saturday? What about when we're not with God's people? What about when we've got to go back home to unbelieving family and friends? To people that you were once very close to that now they don't really understand your new life in Christ. And not only do they not understand, but they pressure you back toward your old ways. Or how about a work environment that's hostile to Christ? That openly mocks you for being a Christian. Or maybe they don't know you're a Christian yet and they openly mock the other believers that are there. Or what about just in those monotonous kind of daily grind situations? You know what I'm talking about? Life in college. You're just trying to balance assignments and work and friendships so that you can actually come back next semester. Or when you wish you were dating when you're not. When you're not sure who your real friends are because you got left out of that road trip. And then there are all the heartbreaking moments, the really painful moments, like when your mom calls to tell you that her cancer has come back. Or that pastor of your home church resigned because he had an affair. That's the life in the world. A world riddled with trials and difficulties. A world that is hostile to God and those who follow Him. But do you know what the good news is? God is not vacant. He's not aloof. He's not uninvolved Monday through Saturday. He is certainly not caught off guard. He's definitely not unable to override even the most painful circumstances for His good and for His glorious purposes. God is meticulously sovereign over every detail of your life. And the good news is that God has even designed the world and the sufferings you experience in it to work together for your ultimate good. Your ultimate conformity to the image of His Son. It's part of the all things that work together for our good. And today we're going to take this bird's eye view and see how The Lord uses this fourth means, which we're calling the world. You could say the means of this troubled and often painful world to grow us up to maturity. Now, it's hard to overstate just how crucial this reality is for us as God's people. Trials themselves, kind of by themselves, are an incredible temptation aren't they? From a human standpoint, they're they're a threat to the church. Why is that? Because they're really hard. (laughs) The Bible does not shy away from the fact that trials are often heart-wrenching. Peter, over in 1 Peter 1, says that we're grieved by these various trials. Hebrews says that the trial is painful when we're in it, in chapter 12, verse 11. The psalmists even weep and moan under the burdens of affliction. 
Even the great Apostle Paul pleaded with the Lord to take his affliction away, his thorn in the flesh. Trials are hard. And because they're hard, we are often tempted to believe all kinds of lies when we're in them. Is God really good? Why would he take me through this if he loves me? Is he wise? How can this be best for my life? Is he really in control? It doesn't seem like he is right now. We're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to grumble, to malign his character, and to miss all the good growth that God intends for us in taking us through the trial. So that's why the entire Bible makes sure that we have what I like to call a theology of suffering. The entire Bible, beginning to end, wants us to make sure that we understand this. Because a lot's at stake if we don't. The Bible tells us we have to know the difficulty is coming. And we have to know that being in the world means difficulty for Christians. Jesus says this very clearly, very simply, very plainly in John 16.33. Ready for it? In the world, you will have tribulation. If the world opposed him, it will oppose us too, and that should not surprise us. But even more important to know, beyond the fact that they're, they're coming, is whose hands they're in. It's this truth. Trials ultimately serve God's eternal and perfect purposes. Or we could say it like Joseph says. Like when he says what his brothers intended for evil in betraying him and selling him into slavery in Egypt. With that, their intention for evil, God intended, he meant for good to literally save the world. He's, here's what he says. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, 20. From beginning to end, God is mysteriously and meticulously working through the evil and rebellion of this world to bring about His good and perfect and glorious purpose. I love this truth. Often when God's enemies think they've won, they've only ended up furthering God's will, playing into His plans. This is over and over in Scripture. Let's just take the crucifixion, for example. Crucifying the Messiah is the, the, the most heinous crime that we humans have ever committed. We tried to kill God. And when we thought that we had stopped God's plans once and for all, as it turned out, we only furthered His will, furthered His plan for the redemption of the world. Acts talks about this over and over. If you want some references here, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says that. And then later, Paul in Acts 13, 27. Talk about these things coming together. 
mystery, the, the, the mystery that God is even at work in the plotting of evil men. His good intentions override their evil intentions. Nothing is outside of his control, not even that traffic jam on the way to church. And no one can ultimately thwart God's gloriously good plan. Not Vladimir Putin, as he decides whether or not to use nuclear weapons. Nor your annoying roommate, who's deciding whether or not he's going to wash his dishes tonight. Not a sparrow falls apart from his will. Matthew 10, 29. And Paul knew how crucial it is for the church to have this theology of suffering established deep in her bones. After Paul planted churches, you know what he did? He talks about this in Acts 14. He comes back to visit these churches that he planted, and he does two things. Luke highlights two things for us that he does. Number one, he installs elders. Pretty important. Long-term health of the church. They need leaders, pastors, and who can shepherd them. And the second thing he did, does is he teaches them about the necessity of trials. Acts 14, 21 through 23. Just, again, by way of introduction, flip over there real quick so you can see it. Acts 14. He's just been on his first missionary journey. He's coming back. He's revisiting the churches, the newly planted churches. Acts 14, he says, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned, here it is, to places they've already been and planted churches. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul wanted them to know that suffering was coming. And it's, it's ordained. It's a must. That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This has been decreed. Paul knew that if the church was going to endure, if the church was going to thrive, they had to know about suffering and God's good purposes for them in it. They had to realize and embrace this good and glorious means of growth. And so do we. So this morning, in the time we have left, I want to give you a quick crash course in some of the things that the Bible says about how God grows us through trials. I've identified at least six ways, six overlapping ways that the Lord matures us in the midst of trials. Again, this is a crash course. And I want to drag you through this because... Sometimes we think, and and maybe even well-meaning people come to us and they say things like this. They say, well, brother, sister, we we don't know what God's doing in the trial, but we can trust his heart. Yes to the second part, we can trust his heart. But do you know that the Bible's actually been very explicit about what God is doing in the hardships, the great and the small? We might not know the details of exactly all the ways he's working his purposes out in your life through those difficult circumstances. 
But he's been very clear about his good intentions for his people through these trials. So let's, let's outline some of these, um, some of these ways that God matures us through trials. When the Lord sends a trial, especially when we are less mature, one of the first things he accomplishes is he exposes our false hopes. He exposes any idols that we've secretly erected in our hearts and we've begun to cherish. So we can say it like this. He, God work grows us through trials. He matures us through trials by exposing our false hopes. By exposing our false hopes. A trial like nothing else will quickly reveal any false hopes that we're leaning on. Paul writes about this experience where this happens to him over in, or when this happened to him, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I've got it on the screen here for you. When he was in Asia, Paul and his team had suffered tremendously. So much so that he said that he thought he was going to die. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So whatever this trial was, it was severe, and it felt absolutely crushing to the, Paul and his team. But in the next sentence, he reveals God's purposes in it, or at least one part of the purpose, kind of the negative side. He says this, but that receiving the sentence of death, that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Now let's stop there. We'll pick up the rest of this verse in just a second. But what I want you to see is the negative purpose of this trial. What was it? It was to make them rely not on themselves. In other words, it was designed by God to wean them off any self-reliance, any subtle idolatries that had crept into their hearts. They were tempted to find human solutions to their problem. And then hope in those. Rather than to humbly look to God, even if it meant looking to Him and how He will vindicate them in the resurrection. So even if they die. But the trial was so crushing that they had nowhere else to look but God. Right? So we might be tempted to wonder something like this, like, my goodness, why did God bring that kind of severity on Paul? Was it necessary that he suffered that much just to get him hoping in God again? We're certainly tempted to ask those questions when it's our trial too, aren't we? How does it take this? We think these kind of things because we underestimate the danger of our unbelief. We underestimate the pain and the devastation that will be caused by our idolatry. We don't realize how, how much damage we can do if that unbelief or pride runs off unchecked. But God does know 
And God loves us too much to let it linger. One pastor put it like this. He said, God would much rather you endure the pain of losing your idol than the injuries caused by idolatry. It's worth thinking about. God would much rather you endure the pain of losing your idol than the injuries, we could say the greater injuries, caused by that very idolatry. That's a profound statement. God is willing to afflict us as His children for our ultimate good. For our ultimate joy. For our ultimate peace. He sends the affliction to reveal to us where our false hopes are and how we might repent. Let's play this out. You've got scholarships at at university. And it comes time, you've got to reapply, and then you hear that you no longer qualify for the scholarship that you had last year. It was big. You freak out. Your heart screams out in unbelief. How am I going to pay for this? I won't be able to do school. I've got to figure something else out now. You know? And you start texting your friends, and you find out that, that they, all, they all got it for a second year, but you didn't. So now your heart explodes with envy. Then it quickly shifts over to self-pity. You start feeling sorry for yourself because you, you might have to stay home for a semester to save money so you can come back. What is happening? The trial, not getting that scholarship, is revealing a false hope. It's revealing that you had suddenly set your hopes on that scholarship. How do you know? All the bad fruit. The bad fruit tells on us. The Lord took your hope and He revealed what you were functionally trusting in. And get this. That is not severity. That is grace. That is His love. To be able to reveal our sin to us so, so that we see it, to see our false hopes, so that we can realign, that is His mercy. And realignment is what the Lord is after. He's, he's not simply exposing our false hopes. He's driving us to fix our hope on the only one who can really help us, in God Himself. And that brings us to the second way that God matures us through trials. He does it by strengthening and refining our faith. God is is weaning you off that false hope to Himself to strengthen your faith in trusting Him. And that's where the money's at. Paul goes on here in in the rest of our verse from 2 Corinthians 1.9. We'll come back to this page, but kind of refocus on the second verse. He says that the trial was to make us rely, not on ourselves, into, into the verse, but on God who raises the dead. So there's the positive side of this thing. God applies the pressure to bring us back to Himself, to strengthen our trust in Him, to refine our hope. And for Paul, even Paul, he needed to get his eyes back on God. The God who has the power to raise him from the dead, even if he dies. And that reality liberated him. 
It gave him strength to continue to endure when he didn't have any previously. It was his source of joy in the midst of soul-crushing suffering. And James, the brother of our Lord, he, he knows that trials do this too. He, he says they are for the testing of our faith in James 1.3. Peter gets it too. Peter says that trials are like a fire that refines our faith. It burns away the impurities of unbelief. It smelts our faith into its most precious and valuable form. 1 Peter 1. How does it do that? How do trials burn away the impurities? Well, it's it's through this process. God sends the trial to reveal your heart. Eventually, you see the bad fruit because you've been hoping in something else. And now he enables you to turn back to him with an exercise of faith. You turn away from that human solution that you were hoping in, and you depend fully on his promises. And every time you do this, every time a trial comes, every test that happens, every time you turn from whatever you're trusting in and renew your your trust in the Lord, your faith is being refined into precious gold. And Peter says that your real, genuine, and precious faith, that will lead to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does this look like in real time? Let's let's pick back up on that scholarship trial. It would sound something like this. Your heart would sound something like this. Wow, Lord, you are really showing me my heart and taking away that scholarship. And it's ugly. Thank you for helping me see that I was functionally trusting in human resources to provide and not you. Because I wasn't seeing that before. I was just going on my, my happy little way. I have to admit that I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I'm scared. But you know. You've got a plan. And it may include me staying at home next semester. As much as I might hate that. I'm going to look for solutions. And I pray that you provide a way for me to stay here. You have all the resources in the universe, Lord. They're at your disposal. But help me to look in faith. Help me to explore these options in faith and not fear. Help me to see this as from your good hand. I know you're growing me in this and you're going to take care of me through it. And ultimately, Lord, may your will be done in this situation because I know that it's best. That kind of prayer, that kind of process is how the Lord is refining and strengthening our faith. So the Lord intends to actively refine us, our faith in these trials, and as our faith is strengthened, something else is happening because of the trial. And Christ's character is being developed in and through us. So God uses these trials to mature us by developing Christ's character. Now we saw this with HD clarity last week, didn't we? In, uh, in the Sunday sermon from Pastor Brian. He gave us a beautiful exposition of a, key, uh, of a key text on this theme in Romans 5. So I'll be brief here, and we'll look at a different text. James 1.3 says that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. See that? I've underlined that for you there in James 1.3. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces steadfastness. 
In other words, the more our faith is tested and strengthened, the more stable we will be in life. The more consistently faithful we will be. We'll be less prone to massive swings, in other words. We'll be able to bear up under pressure better as that faith muscle is strengthened. The author of Hebrews frames this up very similarly, but with a different metaphor. As our father, he says God is disciplining us or training us in chapter 12 of Hebrews. He's disciplining us or training us as his beloved children. And in particular, he's training us through these trials to be like him, to share in his holiness, he says. Hebrews 12.10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's character. He'll go on to say that this training is often painful in the moment, but it will lead to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. His point is that trials are the way that we come to share in the very holiness of God himself. It's the path the Lord often takes us down to cement his righteousness as part of our character. Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews is profound on this point. Because it even says that Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. That's another text that's worthy to think about. Even the author and perfecter of our faith learned obedience through what he suffered. So how does this work in real time? Well, like we saw in the second point, as God is strengthening our faith, he's reorienting us to hope in him, and he's also strengthening that faith to work itself out in being obedient to him. That choice to obey in the heat of the trial, to obey by faith again and again and again, that's how he forges Christ's character within you. So to go back to our example about the scholarship, your trust in God would look like you pursuing other scholarships in faith, not in fear. You'd choose to rejoice in the fact that the Lord chose to provide for your friends through that scholarship that you didn't get, instead of stewing in jealousy. And if the Lord chose to send you back home for a semester by not opening any scholarships to you, then as hard as it would be, It would look like seeking contentment as you save up. It would look like choosing to rejoice in that extra time with family instead of moping around and feeling sorry for yourself. I'm not saying it wouldn't be hard. It's a trial, right? But my point is that the pressure of the trial is intended for you to choose to obey by faith. It's what forges Christian character within you, right? So God intends to use trials to grow us in Christ's own character. And we've alluded to this a couple times already, but do you realize that all this involvement of God in your life, especially through trials, this is intended to lead to your assurance? Do you realize that? As counterintuitive as it seems to us, trials are intended by God to show you that He loves you. And that's our fourth way that he grows us through trials. He assures us that we really are beloved children through the trial.
God reveals to us that he loves us. And he does it by the very presence of trials in our life. Now, don't take my word for it. It says over in Hebrews chapter 12, kind of a long text here, but worth looking at. I don't have it in my notes, so I'm just going to turn, so I don't have to turn to it. He says, in Hebrews 12, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The one whom he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is absolutely critical to take note of. Because a passage like this totally obliterates some of the more sinister lies that we're tempted to believe in a trial. My own heart is tempted to wonder if God really loves me when I'm suffering. And many people, I counsel, many of you, also experience these same questions. We feel abandoned or forgotten or that God doesn't care about us. But that could not be further from what's actually true. The text shouts to us that the trial is the very evidence of his love. He's a perfect father and he's training and disciplining us for our good in his perfect wisdom. It's an evidence that he's invested in your development. That he's powerfully at work to form his own holiness in you so that you can be effective in the here and now and even more so in the coming kingdom. Think of the coach that just let the players do whatever they want to do that just pampered his players and didn't push them. That would not be a good coach. Or a father who, in this case, in the metaphor, doesn't discipline his own children. He would not be a good father. Do you realize that all of this training, all of this discipline, is so that you can reign with God in power in the coming kingdom? He is training you to be part of his royal cabinet, so to speak. To be the kings and queens of the new creation. So the next time you're tempted to doubt God when your life is hard, or when something lands on you that you weren't expecting, remember this verse and say, absolutely no, heart. You know, Don't go there. As hard as this is, it is evidence that he loves me. It is evidence that I am part of his family and that I'm being educated to rule in a coming kingdom. Now that's glorious. And as glorious as that is, God's actually doing something also in the here and now, too. And he's doing that through this trial. He's also making you a more effective servant right now. He's growing you through this trial by improving your ability to minister to others. When God sends a trial. He's improving our ability to minister to others. Through our trials and hardships, God is shaping us into a humble people. 
people who are empathetic toward others, people who know how hard trials can be because we've endured through them ourselves, and people that can offer encouragement and hope to others. We see this principle very clearly back in the opening of, of chapter, uh, uh, the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians. Paul says here, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we received ourselves. And we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul here says that when we're afflicted, we get the unique experience of being profoundly comforted and encouraged by God in the affliction. In other words, trials tenderize us to the Word of God. Trials tenderize us to God's promises and to the reality of our future hope. And it does this like little else can. When your health is taken away, you long for resurrection more than you did before. You find yourself meditating on what, what that glorious existence will be like. The Spirit works powerfully in these moments of weakness to minister comfort to us as we renew our minds, as we see things in text that we've never seen before. And it puts fuel in our spiritual gas tank, so to speak. And Paul says here, though, that this experience of comfort doesn't terminate on you. It's not only for your sake. God grants this experience to you in suffering so that you can pay it forward by comforting others. It's often been said, but it bears repeating, that when God digs a well in the desert of a trial and he sustains us with the water, he intends, it also to, to, he intends to leave the well there so that others can drink from it on their journey, in their trials. You've known the truth. You've come to entrust the Lord in a unique and profound way as you learn to endure in this trial. So the Lord's dug the well, so to speak. And that makes you very useful to others who will also come behind you and experience similar affliction. You're equipped, tenderized, to water them with God's very comfort. But sometimes when the Lord starts bearing fruit through our ministry to others, our hearts can grow conceited and proud. We think that we're somehow generating the fruit. And if he were to leave that pride unchecked, it would actually end up ruining our lives. It would end up ruining our ministries. It would end up ruining our effectiveness. So, you know what he does? Oftentimes, when we're bearing tremendous fruit in ministry, it is necessary for God to send trials and hardships to keep us from pride. From a pride that would otherwise ruin us. That's our sixth and final way that God grows us through trials, by keeping us dependent on Him in the midst of ministry success. For all you aspiring pastors out there, blaze this on your eyeballs. It will help you avoid much discouragement. God grows us through trials by keeping us dependent on Him amidst ministry success. 
And again, we've been appealing a lot to 2 Corinthians. It's a great letter for this, this theme. Listen to what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, So to keep me from being conceited, becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He goes on. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's modeling for us here the principle that God often sends trials to us to keep us humble and dependent in the midst of ministry success. In this case, he had been given extraordinary revelation. He had seen heaven, he says. He had heard things there that he's not allowed to repeat. Now, for, a, for a, 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 a human heart that's in progress, like Paul's was, that can only mean one thing when you've been given extraordinary revelations. Temptation toward conceit, toward pride. You've been shown something that probably no other human being has been shown. And the temptation toward pride must have been tremendous. So a trial was given to him to keep him humble, to keep him in the faith, to keep him depending on God, to keep his pride at bay, Paul says. And we're not sure what it was, what this thorn in the flesh entailed. I'm not going to speculate. But whatever it was, it made Paul weak, he says. It made him weak, humanly speaking. And when you're weak, you can't trust yourself. You've got no strength to trust in. You've got nothing to hope in, like we said in the beginning. Instead, you can only hope in God, and you can only look to Him to produce fruit. But guess what the Lord does through a dependent, weakened servant? He puts His power on display. He produces more fruit. He produces more joy. He produces more peace. And thus, God's power is put on display mightily in our weakness. His grace is sufficient. This point is especially helpful when we might be laid low in a season of ministry success. and When it hinders our ministry efforts, so to speak. Some sickness, illness, uh, debilitating struggle. We're tempted to think, what's going on? Why would you throttle me, Lord, especially when things are going so well? But often we miss the fact that our hearts are growing in pride. And so the trial is a necessary remedy for the humbling of God's people. And it results in more, pr- more fruit because it's the pruning of John 15. We, branches are clipped. Why? So that the ones that stay produce more, more fruit. He prunes us so that our souls aren't wrecked by pride and that we stay faithful, independent. So, as it turns out, God has not left us in the dark when it comes to his purposes in our lives through the difficulties. He says we will have tribulation, 
But he uses this tribulation for our conformity to Christ, for the good of others, and ultimately for his glory. So as we finish up right now, let me just take like two minutes and say a few things here about maybe what, what, do, you, what do you do with all this? If you're suffering. You're in the midst of a trial, maybe several right now. The first thing I would say, just practically, is inventory your burdens. Write them down, list them out, and then prioritize them. Meaning, what's hardest for you? What's the most challenging for you to trust God in? This challenging area. And then, after you've done that, work to renew your mind. Recognize that God intends these dark clouds of this trial to break open in blessing on your head. Use these categories we've talked about today and start tracing out what God is doing in your life through the hardship. What fruit is he trying to produce in your life if you would just trust him with that difficulty? If you would just hope in him instead of trying to come up with some solution for yourself? What glorious opportunities lie within your reach if you could just see the trial rightly from his perspective as from him for our good and as from his good, wise, and sovereign hand? And I would just say start tracing that out. Write that out. What's God doing? How how could he be at work? Next thing I would say is do not grow myopic in the trial. What do I mean by that, myopic? Don't just zero in on the hardship of that one circumstance and miss the 100,000 other daily mercies that God has given you. Often we're like Eve and we fixate on the one tree that we don't have and we neglect the other thousand trees in the garden that God's blessed us with and told us to eat from. And in addition to cataloging your burdens, I'd also catalog these mercies as well to make sure that your soul is thankful and benefiting from all the other mercies God has given you. The danger is that we see God as always doling out trials to us. When in reality, He's only given us a few. I'm not saying they're not painful and they don't rip your heart out at times. But he's only given us a few. It's not more than we can bear. And the rest of our lives are full of his good gifts to us. He's a generous God and he knows what we need. And finally, last thing I'm saying is I would encourage you to look to the future. To the coming kingdom where God's lavish generosity will be on display for eternity. As he blesses you with things you cannot imagine. Because you will be glorified. You won't be tempted to idolize his good gifts. You will be able to enjoy them to the max. And God's going to give them to you. That day is coming, and it is an eternal weight of glory, Paul says. And focusing on that glory and what's coming will help us see the trials of this life, as Paul says, as light and momentary affliction.
Or as Peter says, they're only here for a little while. So that's a vision that's worthy of keeping in view. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you to renew our minds and help us see trials in these ways. I will be the first to confess that this is hard work. And yet, nothing that I've experienced is more fruitful, more joy-producing than coming up underneath a trial and seeing how you're working in it and being able to rejoice, not just in other blessings that you've given us, but in the very trial itself, like you've commanded us to do. Not because we love the trial or we, or, or we like suffering, but because we love to be made useful, we love fruit, and we love you. So, while we're here, Lord, help us trust you. I know many are suffering in lots of various ways. May this be one step uh, back to you in faith as we renew our minds. We pray in Christ's name.